Bray family. We have a different name for them in our house. We call them the Roydales. There's a story behind that I don't have time to tell you, but if you've looked at the outline, you know why. This morning, we're going to jump on into the text this morning because there's a lot here. And I, it really turned out, you were we're working on a project that grows and it grows and it grows. That was the message this week. So we're going to do our best to get out by three. It will be good. I'm joking. Y'all know I got to go somewhere today and take care of a kid. Does that allow me to stay till three? But anyway, we're going to be in the prophet of Jeremiah this morning. We've been looking at several different prophets and different issues about how God is our I am. And I want to talk to you this morning about he is our righteous. He is righteous. And you're going, oh, what do you mean? Uh, we come to the prophet Jeremiah. He lived about 80 years after the prophet Isaiah, the guy we looked at last week. He was uh, uh, living in the last days of Judah and Benjamin's existence. So it's right before and even right after the people go into captivity is when he's living. Uh, and he was called to be a prophet by God at a very young age. Uh, and it, he was called uh, to just a great, great calling. Uh, i, 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 I got to tell you, poor Jeremiah, I, of, all the pro, some of, of all the prophets, he's one of the ones that I just feel, man, what, what a tough life he had. He, he was called by God. He was told he could never marry. He said, God said, what's the point? The country's going into captivity. You never have children because why do you want to drag them into the mess that's coming? You can't go to weddings because they're just a waste of time at this point. It's not like a pretty fun life, huh? Not really. But this is the guy. And God has told him his call is clear and concise. The rebellious people of God are going to be placed under the yoke of the Babylonians, led by the guy named Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to see their city brought to ruin. They're going to see their temple leveled. They're going to see everything that's valuable to them in worship, carried away, and there's no way out. Congratulations. Y'all are thinking, this is going to be a depressing message. For a while, it will be, so bear with me. But the days of living in the promised land are coming to an end, and all of these actions are based on God saying this, I am righteous. God's holiness is contrasted to the rebellion of God's people. Now, when we come to the chapter 32, which is where I want us to look at this morning, <clears throat> the text we're going to look at comes on the heels of a weird purchase. He didn't go to the grocery store. He went, and under God's direction, back to his hometown of Anathoth and bought property. And you're going, why is that weird? I just told you his whole message was what? The land is going to be... Taking captive, people are taking captivity. The land's going to be laid waste. Everything's going to be bad. He says, but go buy a piece of property. Now, why in the world would God tell him to do that? We'll see that in a moment, that there's a promise that comes out of all of this, and he would need a place for his family, not his family, but his inheritance, his relatives to come back, and it was a symbol. So there's three things I want you to see this morning. You're thinking, oh, my goodness, I've seen the outline of the bulletin. We're in trouble. No, we're going to hustle. The first thing I want you to see is this, is God promises correction is coming. Correction's coming. The day's coming. Look at verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I am given this city into the hands of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses of whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. 
I got to tell you, I'm glad I have not been given his message because it is not a pleasant one. But after he bought that piece of property in Anathoth and the siege ramps are beginning to be built and he goes to the Lord in prayer and coming out of his prayer are three words. The first word is this, God is going to bring correction. You're going, not an encouraging word, not yet. After centuries of poor decisions by the people of both Judah and Israel, destruction came to the northern ten tribes. That happened about 100 and something, 140, 30 years before this story. So it's all a done deal at that point. They were deported across the Assyrian Empire. They were called, we call them often the lost tribes of Israel. And their choices had brought down the judgment of God. But the two southern tribes are sitting there, as we might say, as they think at least, in the catbird seat. They're good. Look, we've got the temple. Look, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. Look, we are the seat of everything. We are important. We're somebody. Not so fast, God tells them. He speaks to them about a coming destruction, which makes that purchase of property all that more strange. But this is exactly God's promise. He said, I'm going to see your cities ransacked. I'm going to see your meeting place flattened, and there are going to be people deported from our land. Yay. Not a positive word. Because of their choices, they're going to see devastation in the land. Their hearts are far from God. They've burnt offerings to pagan gods on their rooftops. We don't do that because our roofs are not flat. And they've poured out drink offerings to these false idols. And the, the depths of their rebellion to God was deep and disgusting. And therefore, God says, I'm bringing judgment. But why is he going to do that? He's not doing it to destroy them. He's doing it to be righteous, to bring about the right outcome in the end. So that's the first outcome of the prayer. The second response to the prayer is found in verses 30 through 35. There's five things. That's why there's five blanks if you want to write them down. If not, just draw pictures or something on there. You'll be good. All right? But here's the five things he says. Here are your problems. God presents their offenses. Now, it would be kind of cruel of God to say, I'm going to bring judgment and not tell them why. Here's the five reasons this is going to happen to them. Number one, you chose evil over good. We could just camp right there all morning, couldn't we? That's the world we live in. We think we're not like them. Hmm, We kind of are. Look at verse 30. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Now, you look at a passage like this and we sometimes think, well, when somebody says everybody's doing it, there must be an exception to the rule. Apparently not. Everybody's doing not good not holy, not righteous. They're doing evil. In this instance, everyone's doing it. If the problem is this, their actions are provoking God's wrath. Not a good thing. Their hearts are far from God. Second, you've stirred up God's wrath. Let's go right on into it. Look at verse 31 and 32. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight, God says, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He just kind of wraps them all up in here. And it's got God pretty fired up about their choices. It seems that these precious people that God chose from centuries past to be his people, back in the days of Abraham, he says, those are my people. Why? Because they're my people. And they've come through all this time and all this time and and, and land and, and lived in different places. They were in Egypt for a season, then they were delivered, then they were possessing the promised land, then they began, but their hearts have been far from God. 
They've aroused God's anger. Did you know God can get angry? They've earned destruction. Their choices are about to come back. Third thing on the list is this. You turn your back to God. There's a real neat visual here if you look at the Hebrew. It says, you have turned to me, they have turned to me their back and not their face. Y'all look at my back all the time. I'm sorry. They have turned their back and not their face. Though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. This would be a weird way to present a sermon on a Sunday morning, wouldn't it? But we do that to God, is what he says. His people have turned their back to him. They've rejected his instruction. They've rejected his love. They've, re- they've, they've been the object of his amazing love. And they said, no, no, we're going to do our own thing. It's infinite wisdom. God has chosen them. And yet they say, no, we're going to do our own thing. The fourth issue, they rejected proper worship. Look at verse 34. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Let me just make it real plain what they're doing here. They have been setting up false idols in the very temple of God. The place that God said, this is where I will meet with you. This is our place to come together. This is our place to to come together for worship. And they said, oh, well, we're going to do our own thing here. We're going to set our own way up. We're going to do our own stuff here. And, and, And instead of pursuing a life of holiness and worship, they've chosen ungodly places. As early as Solomon's days, they began to set up idols to pagan gods in the temple. You remember Solomon had how many wives and concubines? Yeah, way, way too many, okay? And every one of those women he married had their own personal gods, and so he would let them put stuff in the temple so that they could have their stuff too instead of calling them to the right thing. And king after king after king allowed this to go on. It's like... This is what we want to do, and we want to call it worship. And yet God had said, this is how worship is supposed to be. This is the fourth reason why the people are going to have exile, going to be judged, why there's going to be destruction, that way things are going to be ugly. And then the fifth one is this, and this never happens in our day and age, of course, so we can just almost skip this one. But look at this. They sacrifice their children. Oh, now there's a lot here. But let me show it to you. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, what are they doing? They are literally, catch this, Baal worship and Moloch worship were kind of related, but they weren't exactly the same. But what they would do, if, if we look at this and go, this is crazy that a person would ever consider doing this. They would bring their infant children to their worship of their pagan gods and they would literally sacrifice their child at the altar. Wow. How in the world can God's people do such foolish things? You're, well, I'm glad we don't do that. Mm. 
Instead of seeing their children as a blessing from God, what they saw them as is a burden or an act of they can worship, use them in worship toward pagan practices. And instead of committing themselves to holy and righteous living, they got involved in despicable activities. And let me tell you what, what the people have chosen is this. They've rejected holy God in five different ways. And God says, the day's coming very soon. It's going to come to a close. I'm bringing judgment on you. Make no mistake, God is not going to be mocked by the ongoing sinful choices of his people. The day of judgment was coming. Consequences will be reaped and things look bleak. Now, if we stopped right there, that'd be pretty pretty um, depressing, wouldn't it? We're a mess. Look at the foolish stuff we do. Look at the things they've been doing in Judah. They deserve what they got. That was God's point. They deserved it. Just as a quick aside, I wonder if God's going to have to apologize to the nation of Judah for the foolishness of us in America someday. I'm not going down that road because I don't have time. But it was one of those thoughts that crossed my mind as I was preparing and writing for today. You've heard it said, well, maybe God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah one day for the actions. And let me tell you something. I never expect a, a pagan to live a godly life. But the people of God, that's a whole different story, folks. To be people who are holy, and set apart and committed to God to treat one another with respect and love. That's what we're supposed to be about. And when we don't, God will eventually bring judgment on us. Now, like I said, if this passage stopped right there, it would be pretty, pretty depressing. But what follows after this is a rapid-fire series of promises from God. Now, they're going to face the consequences of their choices. Don't misunderstand. God is still going to take this nation that we're talking about into captivity. There are going to be many people who lose their lives. The temple is going to be destroyed. The city is going to be laid waste. Things are going to be a mess for a long time, 70 years, by the way, out of this. But I got a secret for you. God says, I am righteous. Which means, he says, I've got some promises for you. So let's see them real fast. And I, and I know we're pushing the time limit a little bit here, but hang in there with me. Seven things. He says, first of all, I'm going to gather you back. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will... Right there in verse 37, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. He says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. Here was a people who had lived in the last 700 years in a territory that today is called Israel. In the days of Joshua, they entered the land, they possessed the land, they established nation. Kings David and Solomon led the nation to expand to the biggest, greatest extent of their geography. 
But now they're down to just the land around Jerusalem and a little bit south. And as a result of poor choices, they're going to lose that next as the Babylonians come and carry their best and brightest people into captivity. Think Daniel. Think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Think of those guys that are going to be carried away because of the choices of the people up to this point. But God says, I'll bring you back. Now remember, prophecy typically has a dual layer to it. Is there going to be a fulfillment of this in 70 years? Absolutely. But there's also going to be something God's going to be doing down the road that's going to be even bigger and greater. He's going to bring his people back to himself. Second, he says, I will be your God. Look at verse 38. And they will be my people and I will be their God. You might stop and think, well, weren't they always God's people? In a sense, technically, yes. But their choices, the choices of God's people sometimes place us outside of his covering. Place us outside of his blessing. And we miss out. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. As a direct result of the exile and captivity, they would come back. They would once again be God's people. And being a people unto God brings about great blessings. He says, I'm going to be your God. Third, he says, I'm going to give you the way. i got to tell you, the first thought I had when I was studying this week, preparing for this, is he's going to give us the what? The way. Who is the way? Just say it with me. Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. He says, I am the way. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after me. Let me remind you, dual prophecy, dual layers. He's speaking clearly of deliverance. He says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you the way. But he's also speaking of the promise of deliverance in Jesus Messiah. He says, I'm going to do something through him that's going to be, wow, good. I'm going to give you the way. The one way. And even though the nation wallowed in sin and rebellion with repentance would come deliverance. Don't miss that repentance thing in the middle of that. And what God was going to provide based on his righteous nature would be deliverance from bondage in 70 years, but also deliverance from bondage at the cross. He says, I'm working. And you'll live in fear. Now you think, oh, I don't want to be afraid. We're not supposed to be afraid of God. We're supposed to have a healthy respect for God that we love him and honor him and bless him. Fourth promise, verse 40, I'll make a lasting covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The people of God struggled with covenant keeping. If you go back to Mount Sinai, they got the first covenant. You remember what they happened like the next day almost. They got a gold calf and they started dancing around like fools. And God had to renew the covenant, and he has to renew the covenant. But what he's saying here is a promise that is going to be amazing. He said, I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to give them a lasting covenant, one that will go on and on and on. Over the last 700 years up to this point, the people of God have been wandering like some drunk fool left to right, stumbling over themselves. He says, I'm going to fix that with you and make a lasting covenant. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to do it without the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to rebuild the temple, but the ark never comes back. We don't need that. What we need is a relationship. Then fifth, he says, I'm going to rejoice. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them this land 
in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What he's promising is this. I'm going to give, bring about the good in your life. Now, this is not a good that we say, this is what I want. No, it's a good that God says, this is what I have for you. God's plan was to let them go through the season of captivity, suffering before he brings them back, and it would be there that God would rejoice in the good I'm going to do in them. And from the time they returned from exile just and got the walls rebuilt, there would be this pregnant pause of about 400 years before Messiah Messiah was revealed with the last prophet of the Old Testament, John, saying, there he is. God's going to do good through his people, even if it takes a mess. And I will bring them good. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise him. He's going to, I want to do good in your life. In the front end, he's saying, you're going to have some seriously tough years. There's going to be some ugly time here, but I'm going to bring about the best in your life. And the people of the immediate line of these words, might have said, man, you're going to tear our city up. You're going to tear our walls down. You're going to destroy the, yes, it's all going to be gone. But I got good. He says, I want you to walk by faith, not by sight. And then seventh, he does this promise. Fields will be, will be bought in the land, this land, of which you're saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the hand of Benjamin in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and the cities of the hill country and the cities of the Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. He says, I'm going to bless your faithfulness once you repent. There would come a day when the fields bought in the land would flourish again. There would be a time when the land would bloom again. The highlands to the valleys of the Shephelah. The Shephelah is the area between Jerusalem and the seashore. Even the cities of the Negev in the south would bloom. And there's nothing too hard for God through this. He says, I'm going to bless you as you turn from him. Now, what in the world do you do with a story like this? You're going, man, that's a neat history lesson, Patrick. Thank you. I know I tend to be a little historical. Not hysterical. Historical. I get it, okay? But there is something from this I want you to see. And that's why we went through all that to show you these three things. I'm here to remind you this morning of this truth. God's pathway is always good. You say, well, I don't understand why God's doing what he's doing. I don't understand why he's allowing evil to run rampant. I don't understand why these things are going on and on and on. I don't understand why the foolishness of people is infiltrating the, 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 the holy church of God. I don't understand why this stuff's going on. It says, I, God's, I got it. I'm in charge. Don't worry. Over and over again, God reveals his love and care for his people. Hey, that's you and me. His heart desire for all people is to do this, to live a restored life, a blessed life, and a transformed life. But so often, what do we do in response to God's leading? We say to God, I can do it my own big self. I can handle it, God. I'm good. I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. We act like little children sometimes. I'm here to remind you, every time in life that we try to go it alone, Every time in life we try to handle things on our own, every time we try to be the master of our own destiny, we will find ourselves headed in the wrong pathway. Because our pathway is not always good, but God's is. 
When we do our own thing, we'll head off the rails. We'll go into the proverbial ditch. We'll find ourselves in a mess. Maybe we need to be reminded of the words of Joshua when he was stepping into the leadership of the land, when he said this, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. You realize he was talking about possessing the land at the time. But I think that principle applies to us as well. We need to be people who don't sit back here and go, well, I don't know. I think I can handle that. I can do this. And when I get in trouble, then I'll holler out for God. God, can you help me out? I'm having a problem here. No, no, no. Be strong and be courageous. Don't fear. Don't be in dread. It is who who goes before us? The Lord our God. And if he's not going before you, why do you want to go there in the first place? Let us be people who lean hard into the wisdom of God, into the leadership of God. Reject the foolish thoughts we have about, I'm in charge, I'm the, this is my opinion, this is what I want to... Uh, I'm so tired of hearing myself say those words. This is what I want. You know what I want? only thing I want in my life is what God wants. Because His pathway is what? Always good. Number two... Hitting bottom lets us finally look up. <clears throat> You're going, you mean we got to go to the bottom before we can move forward? Sometimes. That's what God was telling his people through Jeremiah. You've got to get to the bottom. And when you get to the bottom, you're going to have a choice to make when you get there. Either you can get down in that muck and mire and swim around and like cover yourself with it and be a mess, or you can do what? Look up. Where's our help come from? comes from the Lord, right? It doesn't come from our intelligence. It doesn't come from our wisdom. It doesn't come from our wealth. It doesn't come from what we can do. It comes from who? From the Lord. That's what we need to look up for, folks. I'm not saying we got to figure out a way to intentionally get to the bottom, but we sure don't have to go swimming around in the muck and mire when we get there, do we? Make a conscious decision that says, I'm going to look up. When you have foolish choices, look up. When you find your plans are insufficient, Look up. When you realize our wisdom pales in comparison to God, look up. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Who are you relying on today? The Sunday school answer is Jesus. But are we really? Are we really? Are we really trusting God? And one more promise for you. And we'll make it. God absolutely desires redemption. You look at a story like Joshua, I mean, excuse me, Jeremiah, and the words he was telling the people, you're going into captivity, the city's going to be destroyed, everything's going to be... You think, well, God doesn't really care about those folks. Oh, yeah, God absolutely desires their redemption. The problem was they had such a stubborn streak in them and a stiff neck on them that they had to be broken before God could use them. Take the image you might have of God as some mean old man in the sky wanting to strike you down at the first sign of sin and throw it out the window. Why? God absolutely hates sin. Don't miss that. But he also absolutely desires your redemption. 
You know, God didn't care about me. God absolutely cares about you. 100% cares about you. And God hates sin. He loves redemption. His heart is to redeem people from their sin, to wash them clean, to place them on a new pathway. He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want to condemn you. What he wants to do is bring about the very best in his life. If you look at the broad stroke of Jewish, Israel, Judah, Benjamin, and all those folks' history, what you see is that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God kept saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back. He'd send judges at first. He'd send kings eventually. He would send prophets toward the end. And he would say, come back to me, come back to me. What was he doing? He said, I'm trying to redeem you. And they would keep saying to God, oh, we got it. We're good. We can handle it. Sounds like a lot of folks I know, starting with the one in the mirror in the morning. He does not want to destroy you. He does not want to condemn you. He did not want to send his people into captivity. But finally, the time came. He said, that's what's going to have to happen to get your attention so I can redeem you. Paul told the Ephesian church this, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's where we find forgiveness, my friends. That's where we find redemption. And grasp this truth. Even in the face of foolish decisions, God stands at the door and says, I love you. There may be consequences from your choices. Who among us haven't had to suffer consequences from foolishness we've done in life? But God's grace is still there wanting to forgive, wanting to redeem, wanting to change. So the invitation is simply this. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. His offer stands. I love you. You go, well, how do I get it? Do I need to like join a church and go to a class and go to all this? Here it is. You say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I want your forgiveness that you're offering to me. Come into my heart, save me. If you'll do that, you go, well, that's, that's too easy. God doesn't want to make it hard. He wants us to be redeemed. We go, well, you need to do this. You need these seven things or these eight things or these four. We've got to do all this list. That's us putting a list on there. God just says, I love you. Will you follow For many of us, it's not a decision to follow. We've already done that. The decision is, why are we trying to take control back and be in charge? He says, I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to love you. For many of us, the prayer we need to pray is something like this. God, I've been trying to run it myself. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm trusting you. I'll be here at the front if you'd like to pray. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to pray at an altar. Maybe you just need to stay seated while we sing in a minute and just talk to God for a few minutes. Let him just say, this is where I've got you. This is what I want to do with you today. Will you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and worship, to sing, to praise.
to look at your word. Father, a weird story from the Old Testament. But Father, a promising story from the Old Testament that even though we've made many, many, many poor choices in life, when we repent, you will, God, call us to yourself and draw us to your side. We pray your hand upon these few moments as we respond and however you guide us in Jesus' name.